All right. We sing? So let's talk. Okay. The task set before us in this hour is to move from 1960 to the present. Um, and is to consider the torrent of ideas and people and schools that have flowed in the last 60 years or so. Um, oh, where's my little... I had a, Oh, yeah. I think if I were to redo your title page, not your title page, but your table of contents page, I would say part one, 1740s to 1760s, 1860s, seeds. That's what I would put there, seeds, S-E-E-D-S. Then after part two, 1820s, 1890s, I'd put the word roots. I'm going to do this in the final version, roots. Part three, 1900s, 1960s, I'd put the word flower, flower. Part four, we're going to see the forest, the garden or something, lots of flowers. Okay. We're going to look at the forest. The flower appeared last hour. Um, where are we? Mm-hmm. Yep, okay, 45 minutes. There's no way to do justice to this. There's no way not to do an injustice to somebody who was working since the 1960s until now. There are many key figures that will be left out that were, they're hallowed names in many of these schools and these movements. And if you were a Presbyterian or a Congregationalist or an Episcopalian or a Lutheran that moves in progressive circles um, or a pastor, you would know names like Harold DeWolf, Nels Ferre, Bernard Malin, John Cobb, Schubert Ogden, Gordon Kaufman, Edward Farley, Peter Gomes. The names are legion and they're very important to, to the flowering and the forest of American liberal theological thinking. Um, so we're not going to talk about those guys, although we could. Um, what we will seek to do is learn better the relationship of two major constituencies that we haven't talked about yet, and then just a handful of thinkers and movers and shakers. One is the question of the relationship between the Roman Catholic Church and American theological liberalism. We do that right now. Second, we want to talk about women in the rise of American theological liberalism. You haven't heard a woman's name yet, and you should. Because in many ways, they're not only increasing in the field, I think they might have the field in some ways um, in terms of American theological liberalism. And then we'll move into the story of Langdon Gilkey, John Shelby Spong and Marcus Borg, and we'll finish with Philip Clayton. Let's start here. Why have we been able to survey almost 200 years of American theological liberalism and not even heard so much as a whiff about the Roman Catholic Church. How could that be? How one-sided could I possibly be in presenting this? The simple answer to that important question is that until the mid-1940s, the Catholic Church stood like an immovable, impenetrable fortress of uh, conservatism. I'm going to use the word conservatism, Bill. <laughs> conservatism because it's in my manuscript. Orthodoxy. Um, As the waves of liberalism were hitting the shores of the American landscape, the Catholic Church was unimpressed and stood strong. In the early 20th century, the Vatican saw modernity 
creeping its way. They were surrounded by it in Europe, okay, German thinkers and so on. And they saw it creeping its way, and so they battened on the hatches. And there were a series of papal encyclicals, 1899 and 1907. I won't won't embarrass you or me by trying to pronounce them because they're in Latin, but they're in the footnotes and you can take a look at them. There's three of them. Um, The papal encyclicals had an absolute and unequivocal crushing of American theological liberalism, the possibility of it in the Catholic Church. It was just decimated for the better part of 50 years. Gary Dorian observes, The Vatican's about-face on modernity liberalism was chilling. Pope Leo XIII, Pius IX, Pius X defined modernity exhaustively in the course of repudiating it. The particulars included biblical higher criticism, evolutionary theory, individual interpretation. Now, that's going to be more a Catholic issue than a Protestant issue. There were other issues. Other beliefs that were cherished by American liberal Protestants, though. The Vatican argued that modernist theology, liberalism, was a synthesis of all heresies. Finally, the Vatican instituted an oath against modernism that was required of all Catholic clergy and all Catholic theologians. That's a breathtaking display of power. You have that when you have magisterial authority. And it didn't last. Uh, Liberalism would even begin to wear down the Vatican in places, not entirely. Fissures and fractures appear. The first fracture was 1943. Pope Pius XII gave a papal encyclical which granted Catholic theologians the freedom to use the tools of interpretation of biblical higher criticism. From that time until the calling of the Second Vatican Council, uh, liberal Catholic theologians took that little inch and, and pushed, pushed really hard with the tools that they had been given to see if they could uh, put into motion um, a liberal movement without being condemned by the, the church, which is quite a trick if you're a Catholic theologian, difficult to do. Issues on the table at Vatican II in the 1960s included the education of Catholic laity in the contents of the Mass, the acknowledgement of elements of holiness and truth in movements outside the visible confines of the Catholic Church, namely us, and a vision of the inspiration and authority of the Bible that reflects the 1943 encyclical regarding higher criticism. Um, The reform was in part stated this way. Here's a quote. Uh, Due attention must be paid both to the customary and characteristic patterns of perception, speech, and narrative which prevail in the age of the sacred writers of the Bible, end quote. Which is really something that conservative evangelicals believe too. You take the context seriously. Um, The difference would be that such a statement in the hands of someone who is leaning toward a a view that would lessen the authority of Scripture might use that to bolster a position like the denial of inerrancy or inspiration or something like that, both of which the Catholic Church still officially teaches today. We've got my catechism there, and we could take a look at that, but inerrancy and inspiration, they're right on board. And in my experience, most Catholics believe in those doctrines that take their faith seriously. Um. Though individual liberal Catholic theologians have certainly existed, 
uh, including though not limited to, whoops, what happened? There. Liberal theologians in the Catholic Church have included Gregory Baum, Richard McBrien, David Tracy, Anne Carr, Elizabeth Johnson. They stand as the exception rather than the rule today. There's a movement, but it's not overwhelming. Um, There is, though, a breadth of theological thinking in the Catholic Church today that was just not on the radar 60 years ago, or the the possibility of it, just there wasn't really a category for it. And the election, I would submit, of the last two popes, Benedict and Francis, express the division that exists in the Catholic Church, something of a parable here. Uh, I think the overwhelming number of Catholics on the planet today are theological conservatives, theological orthodox. Um, But they are something of a house divided, given the reforms at Vatican II, and then think about the shape of the papacy under Benedict and the, the movement that seems to be happening with Pope Francis. They're different men with different emphases. It's too early yet uh, to make any you know, major statements about Francis, but he's a different man, very different man than his predecessor. Um, let's close this little sketch on Catholicism and liberalism with a very powerful statement from J. Gresham Machen. Machen wrote this in 1923 in Christianity and Liberalism, and he died in 1937. So Machen did not live to see Vatican II or even imagine Vatican II. But I think that this statement in the main is as accurate today as when he wrote it in 1923. If you ever wonder why evangelicals and conservative Catholics have so very much in common, including world and life view, doctrinal convictions, political affinities, and the like, this statement from Machen goes a long way toward explaining why. Listen to Machen. Serious is the division between the Church of Rome and evangelical Protestantism in all its forms. Yet how great is the common heritage which unites the Roman Catholic Church with its maintenance of the authority of Holy Scripture, its acceptance of the greaterly creeds to devout Protestants today. We would not indeed obscure the difference which divides us from Rome. The gulf is indeed profound. But profound as it is, it seems almost trifling compared to the abyss which stands between us and many ministers of our own church. He's talking about Presbyterianism. The Church of Rome may represent a perversion of the Christian religion, but naturalistic liberalism is not Christianity at all. That's not Abernathy, that's Machen. Okay? But you hear that. That's clear. It's controversial. It's perceptive. Let's turn to women in liberal theology. The role of women in the development of American theological liberalism began as early as 1830. I'm not quite sure where to put the date, but I would say 1830 because that was the year that Elizabeth Cady Stanton entered seminary. Stanton, how do I do the little thing, Dan? Stanton, she entered seminary in 1830. Um, Stanton was born in 1815 in Johnstown, New York. Her parents, Daniel and Margaret Cady, had ten children. Five boys, five girls. Four of the boys died in childhood. 
The final son, named Eliezer, lived to graduate college and then himself died as a young man. And Elizabeth's father, I'm going to have fun with this now, was inconsolable. She was 10 years old at the time of the death of her brother Eliezer, last boy in the family. And she says this. This is a personal memoir. Talking about her father and the death of her brother. With my head resting against my father's beating heart, we both sat in silence. He, thinking of the wreck of all his hopes and the loss of a dear son, and I wondering what could be said or done to fill the void in his breast. At last, at length, he heaved a deep sigh and said, Oh, my daughter, I wish you were a boy. Throwing my arms around his neck, I replied, I will try to be all that my brother was. Now, if we had another entire seminar, we might begin to scratch the surface of the dysfunction in the paragraph that I just read. But that moment explains much about Elizabeth Cady Stanton's pursuits. She had a father who didn't want her to be a woman. And even as a little girl, she tried not to be one. In time, she became one of the earliest and most influential feminists in American history. She was a passionate feminist. And she despised traditional notions of womanhood. She once said, quote, When I think of all the wrongs that have been heaped upon womankind, ah, how I do repent me of the male faces I've washed, the mittens I've knit, the trousers mended, the cut fingers and broken toes I have bound up, exclamation point. She became a a co-belligerent with Susan B. Anthony in the women's suffrage movement. I say co-belligerent because Anthony was not a professing Christian in any way, shape, or form. But they had feminism in common. Um, In order to aid the fledgling feminism movement, Stanton composed what has become known as the Woman's Bible. It was published in 1895. Interestingly, Stanton was not a theological egalitarian. Now, that's kind of insider language, but she did not believe that the Bible taught that men and women were interchangeable in their roles and relationships. Stanton looked at the Bible and saw a book that was undeniably complementarian, and she would see it even more so, traditional authoritarian uh, with no place for a woman. But she clearly did not say that the Bible... Uh, sees men and women as interchangeable, and she did not see the Bible allowing any sort of leadership positions for women in the home or the church. Um, And that's very clear in her Bible-length commentary called The Woman's Bible. Um, She thought the Bible was clear on the matter of male headship as leader, initiator, protector, and responsibility bearer. She also saw that Scripture taught that women ought to rejoice in and come underneath such worthy male leadership. She believed the Bible taught these things, and she hated it. Furthermore, she saw that Scripture communicated such truths as the virgin birth and the deity of Christ, and she rejected these two. I'm not saying there's any connection between egalitarianism and denying the divinity of Jesus. I'm just saying she made those things work in her mind together. 
Another early female influence is in the middle here. This is Vita Scudder. Uh, She was born to missionary parents in India, 1861. Her father drowned while a missionary in India, in the ocean. And she and her mother moved back to the U.S. when she was 10 years old. Eventually, she and her mother found her way to the Episcopal Church, and then she enrolled at Oxford University in 1884. She was the first woman ever to enroll at Oxford University in England. In the words of Gary Dorian, uh, I would, I, this is the words of me, her embrace of liberalism was very, very swift at Oxford. This is Dorian. Scudder gave no quarter to biblical literalism, hellfire, demons, substitutionary atonement, other examples of unenlightened orthodoxy. In 1887, she took a position at Wellesley College, teaching English lit. And her greatest contribution to the development of liberal theology was to work alongside Walter Rauschenbusch. She was a a friend of Rauschenbusch's, and she moved in, um, politically moved in socialist circles, kind of pitched in that direction and uh, tried to aid the social gospel movement alongside Rauschenbusch. Um, She had reservations about Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, but she did appreciate his theology in many ways too. Uh, One more primary early on female influence is this woman, Georgia Harkness. Um, Harkness was born in 1891 in a conservative Methodist home. She entered Cornell University in 1908, and she eventually studied at Boston University, which we haven't talked about, but Boston University was where Borden Parker Bound taught, and we didn't mention him too much yesterday, but he was an early-on liberal theologian at Boston. She was mentored by Bound at uh, Boston. 1927, she was ordained in what was called the Methodist Episcopal Church, eventually became known as the United Methodist Church after their merger with the Evangelical United Brethren. I know that because that was one of the traditions I grew up in, the United Methodist Church. Uh, she was a liberal, but maybe critical. Critical advocate of liberalism would be the best way to say it. Uh, she was, my heart goes out to her, she was a tortured theologian in many ways. She struggled with the movement that she came to embrace And wouldn't you know it, she struggled with it because of her relationship with her father. This is what she says. Uh, Liberalism needed to see in the Bible something more than a collection of moral adages or a compendium of great literature. It needed to see in Christ something more than a figure living sacrificially and dying for his convictions. It needed to to be recalled to the meaning of the cross and the power of the resurrection. Um, one of the defining moments of her life came when it uh, came time for her father to die. And she drew near to his side at his father's, her father's deathbed. His name was Warren, Warren Harkness. And as he lay dying, he engages her in a discussion about the books she had written, which were many at that point. And after she told him she'd written seven books, he told her, this is a quote from her dying father, I think they must be good books. Wise men say they are, but I wish you would write more about Jesus Christ. And that tortured her, and she tried to write more. She tried. 
after Stanton and Scudder and Harkness blazed a trail for women in theological leadership within the movement, uh, I mean, just like a floodgate, really a floodgate opened up, and uh, female participation in American theological circles uh, became significant, particularly as women's ordination began to be a possibility in the 50s, 60s, and so on. Uh, So after Stanton, Scudder, and Harkness, luminaries that we won't even mention, uh, save to mention their names, uh, Valerie Saving from Garrett, uh, Valerie Saving, and then Rosemary Radford Ruther from Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, very important name, uh, Marjorie Hewitt Shashaki, uh, Va- Vanderbilt Divinity School, Sally McFaig, who was, uh, sorry, Marjor- Marjorie Shashaki, and then Vanderbilt Divinity School, Sally McFaig, University of uh, Chicago's Nancy Frankenberry, Sheila Grave Devaney of the Iliff School of Theology, and then Catherine Keller, who's around today. Uh, at Drew University. Uh, The place of women within American liberal theology is cemented and central. They exert a significant influence right alongside, in some ways, in some ways, overtaking male colleagues. They're proliferate, proliferate, whatever, whatever that word is. Influential. Have an important role in American liberal theology. Let's look at Langdon Gilkey. Uh, Born in 1919, raised in a theologically liberal home, his father, his father and mother were important social gospelers in the early 20th century. Uh, Gilkey was perhaps positioned better than anyone before him for the, for the dramatic departures from orthodoxy that he's going to make. Breathtaking, actually. He was educated at Columbia, Harvard, and then Union Seminary. Gilkey went on to teach at the University of Chicago. Um, he's possibly best known for what he called, and he coined this term, God is dead theology. The God is Dead Movement. It's Langdon Gilkey. That was Time Magazine cover, 1960s. What is God is Dead theology? Well, in some ways, it was the announcement, not that the God who actually created and sustains the universe is dead. Gilkey didn't mean that. But he meant that the God of the Bible is dead. Gilkey didn't see these gods as one and the same. He didn't believe that the God who actually exists could be identified with the God of the Bible. Thus, that God is dead. Gilkey once said it this way. He couldn't say boring things. He said controversial things, but he was not boring. He said this, quote, For us, then, the Bible is a book of the acts Hebrews believed God might have done and the words he might have said had he done and said them. But, of course, we recognize that he did not. His cards are on the table. His candor is refreshing and frightening. Speaking of candor, I want to close our sketch of Gilkey by listening to Gary Dorian describe Langdon Gilkey himself, talk about the differences between his generation of liberalism and his parents' generation. This is another one of these heart-wrenching, if you care about, you do, heart issues. How does God's dead theology happen? Here's an idea. This is uh, a combination of Dorian and Gilkey. Dorian begins, Virtually all of the liberal leaders of the social gospel era were raised in homes that featured family devotions, Bible reading, personal prayer, and Sunday observance. Rauschenbusch, Matthews, there's others. Well, Gilkey's parents, okay? 
Langdon Gilkey, whose father was a classic example of this trend, observes that liberal leaders like Fosdick, Matthews, and Charles Gilkey, his dad, were products of a spiritual culture that began to wither in the next generation. Gilkey recalls that at the funeral of his mother, Geraldine Gilkey, Harry Emerson Fosdick preached the sermon, and he recited scripture passages for half an hour from memory. Harry Emerson Fosdick, who did not believe the Bible. Scripture passages, half an hour from memory. Why? He grew up in a home that featured family devotions, and he personally studied the Bible daily for his soul. Gilkey remarks, this is Gilkey now, my generation of neoliberals study the Bible, but Fostick's generation read it every day and knew it line by line. No wonder they could talk so easily of Christian experience. My generation hardly has a clue as to what it meant. So much of what went wrong and has gone wrong with this movement is present right there. Notice that social gospel leaders themselves grew up in homes where the Bible was read and Christ was worshipped as a family. That should serve all of us parents and grandparents notice that family worship is not a crank that you turn and out pops a Christian on the other side. It doesn't work that way. Although I would be more afraid not to have family worship in the home. Fosdick himself cited scripture for half an hour at Geraldine Gilkey's funeral. However, the generation who quote-unquote cut back on family worship, the consequences were dire. Uh, Langdon Gilkey, who died just nine years ago at the age of 85, he died when my son was born, 2004, developed God-is-dead theology. I told Caleb the story of Langdon Gilkey, and he was sad to hear that. He said, yeah, we have, we have family worship. You didn't have family worship? No. Let's move on to John Shelby Spong and Marcus Borg. We take Spong and Borg together because they, they did similar things. They're still around today. That's why we don't know their dates there. But uh, Spong was born in 31. He's on the left. Born in 1931. He's in his 80s today. Marcus Borg, born in 1942. They, followed, they are following similar paths. Like Beecher and Fosdick before them, these men are popularizers of American liberal theology. They have the horsepower here to do serious academic work. They just choose to pitch it toward Sunday school type, adult Sunday school readership. Okay? You go to, if there's any Barnes and Nobles left, you're going to see these books on the shelves. You're not going to see Shaler Matthews on the shelf. You're going to see Spong, and you're going to see Borg on the shelves in the religion section. Um, this is important because throughout much of the latter half of the 20th century, American liberal theology was increasingly marked by two features. Number one, brilliance. And number two, incoherence. <laughs> um, are you familiar with the statement that Oliver Wendell Holmes made about simplicity and complexity? I tried to, sh I tried to share it during a sermon a while ago and I, I didn't do it well, so I'm going to try it again. Um, it's ironic that I would complicate an illustration about simplicity. Um, <laughs> let me try to say it. 
Holmes, Oliver Wendell Holmes said, I would not give a fig for the simplicity, here's complexity, I would not give a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give my life for the simplicity on this side of complexity. Liberal scholars who succeeded in disseminating their work and gaining a following were ones who could speak plainly and simply to the greatest number of people. Part of the Achilles heel of scholarship, and it's not unique to liberalism, conservatives have this problem too, is their inability to state complex things simply. Okay? Um, For liberal theologians, their frequent difficulty was not simplicity on this side of complexity. It was making complex things simple. Liberal theologians in many cases have not been good at it. Uh, this, is, this is the way that Gary Dorian said it. This is brilliant. Gary Dorian says this. Who is a liberal theologian himself? He says, liberal theology was short on intelligibility, not intelligence. That's really... That's really that's why I like reading this guy. Um, so in the 1980s and 1990s, two men who stepped onto the brilliant but confusing field of academic scholarship were these guys. And they have really taken it in the teeth because their colleagues mock them for the kinds of books they write. Because they're not writing heavyweight theology. They're writing to folks like us. And they're making impact. Um, so Shelby and Spong and John Shelby Spong and Marcus Borg believe uh, all of what a man like Gilkey would say. They're just translating it for people in the pew. They, these guys have a gift for short, punchy, direct statements written in language that adult Sunday school classes can process. I know this because I can bear witness that these are taught in adult Sunday school classes today in the 21st century. I can bear witness to that. Theologically, Spong is as progressive or liberal as anyone before him. Spong called the apostles and Nicene creeds empty and meaningless. His books have sold in the tens of thousands. He wrote a book, he's written 50, 60 books. He just wrote a new book on, I think, the Gospel of John or Matthew, I can't remember. Um, 1998, he wrote a book called Why Christianity Must Change or Die. Uh, titles like these are not written for professional scholars. They're written with the church in mind, which is theology should serve the church. Um, on the same score, we have Marcus Borg, equally capable of writing for other scholars, but Borg has mainly chosen to serve the church with his theology. I say mainly because Borg has also been a part of a, a group called the Jesus Seminar, if that phrase means anything to you, an, uh, an academic think tank of liberal scholars who paint a portrait of Jesus that has precious little to do with the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, uh, William Willimon, who we quoted last night, who just knows how to th- say things, the Jesus Seminar reads the New Testament and devises a Jesus that looks suspiciously like a West Coast professor. That's what he said. Uh, Borg is a major player in the Jesus Seminar that still meets today. Um, Borg's most well-known books include, and I've read some of these with tears, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time, The God We Never Knew, The Heart of Christianity, Reading the Bible Again for the First Time. Gary Dorian's summary observation of the heart of Borg's theology is apt. Listen to this. 
Dorian says, Borg describes faith in a panentheistic God. He's panentheistic. Christianity is not the only true religion, Borg assures. But all people need a satisfying spiritual home, and progressive Christianity makes an enriching and challenging spiritual home. Uh, Both Spong and Borg continue to write and lecture today, and they make the complexities of liberal theology simple and intelligible for non-specialists, adult readers. One last sketch, and then we'll talk. Philip Clayton, born in 1955, which puts him in his mid-50s? Almost 60, late, late 50s. Young, just put it that way, he's young. Philip Clayton, in my personal estimation, is the key figure to watch today, far and away. In what is today a 300-year-old movement, I think Philip Clayton is taking the mantle and is running as hard and is speaking as loud and as winsomely as anybody ever has. Um, Who is this man? Uh, He was raised in a conservative Protestant home. He would say fundamentalist or evangelical. You can look him up on YouTube. Uh, He's all kinds of videos there. He graduated from Yale University. He did postgraduate studies at Munich, Germany. And then in March 2005, he became the Ingram Professor of what is now known as Claremont Lincoln University in Claremont, California. A brief word on Claremont Lincoln before we actually talk about Clayton. Um, Claremont Lincoln began as the Maclay School of Theology in San Fernando, California in the year 1885. For over 100 years, that school's primary affiliation was with the Methodist Church. And they, they moved along a similar trajectory as the Methodist Church did, which is t- toward uh, more progressive and liberal-leaning thinking. In the spring of 2011, which is about a year and a half ago, philanthropists David and Joan Lincoln made a $50 million donation to Claremont. $50 million donation. Effectively changing its name, you guessed it, to Claremont Lincoln. And they reorganized around the vision that the school would relaunch to become the the world's first interfaith seminary. Not interdenominational. Interfaith. According to the LA Times, David Lincoln said, Joan and I are particularly pleased with the idea of creating a multi-religious university that reflects the power and potential of the golden rule. The website further explains, yes, this is a new kind of university, multi-religious, and it's a spark of optimism for the times that we live in. We know that religion is not a competitive sport. Parenthetical statement, that preaches. That's how you say things to get a following. Religion is not a competitive sport. Keep quoting. It's not a game of winner take all. No, most world's religions have articulated an ethics of reciprocity in the Western society known as the golden rule. Whatever it's called, this principle puts religions on a path to solutions. Call the step up, name your passion, and take real action. That's from the website. Got that last week. This is the environment that Clayton is working in right now. 
Clayton, who grew up in conservative Christianity over the years, has moved further to a position of broadly evangelical, probably 15, 20 years ago, to a a position of uh, very bold and, and confident classic liberalism. And that would be his own language. Uh, In his first public address, as the Ingram Professor of Theology, Clayton said it plainly, 2005, I am a liberal Christian. Liberal Christians are not accustomed to speaking in ringing tones today. But why? We have an equally clear and powerful heritage, albeit one that does not separate black from white so clearly, It's time for a new vision for liberal theology between church, academy, and the world. Now, Clayton half apologizes here. He says, forgive my strong response. I'm a convert to liberal Christianity, so I bring the passion of a convert rather than the jaundiced eye of the cynical thinker. God knows in the present political climate, liberal Christians need passion, earth-shaking passion when we speak of our faith. You hear him? He sounds like Beecher. He sounds like Fosdick. He sounds like Rauschenbusch. His theology, it's all question marks. His oratory, exclamation points. And this will preach into the days ahead. If you doubt me, look him up on YouTube. He's moving to watch an action. He couldn't be bored if he tried. Couldn't be boring if he tried. And he's only in his late 50s, which means I think he has many impactful years. And he, part of the reason I believe this is because he's positioning himself to be the father of the, uh, really the invigoration of liberal theology in America. He has become um, the Yoda for the, what is left of the emerging church movement. Clayton is very smart, and he has befriended national leaders like Tony Jones and Doug Padgett, both of whom make their homes here in the cities. Uh, Clayton has found a way to offer an olive branch to these guys that I think is going to provide some mentoring, some institutional stability. If $50 million is any indication, some, some ability to back things. Clayton is, is uh, someone to watch. Well, we've come to the end of our biographical portion of the seminar. Uh, all that's left in the next hour is just to see if we can draw some helpful uh, practical takeaways from our study here. So let's pause for a break and some discussion. And then my hope is to land the plane, and we will land the plane, with some practical, real-world, how then should we engage what we've just heard for four hours.